is the Tom Hartman Program. So we came out of World War II with a debt that was about 127% of GDP, the highest it had been um, in a long, long time. And the top tax rate was 91%. And Dwight Eisenhower, the Republican governor, paid off a lot of that by borrowing even more money and engaging in massive infrastructure spending. The Eisenhower Interstate Highway System, building brand new schools, building hospitals, or helping communities build hospitals. There were two of them in Lansing where I was living, uh, St. Lawrence and Ingham Medical, built during that era. And that so built the economy with that top tax rate that we got our debt back down, we got our economy back. Joe Biden is proposing to do essentially the same thing under the Biden American Rescue Plan. Now, families making less than $75,000 a year this year will probably owe nothing in federal income taxes. And Biden wants to raise taxes on people making more than $400,000. And he wants to revisit Republican President Dwight Eisenhower's plan to rebuild America. There are some voices who are saying, no, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You can't do that. Dan Mitchell, Dr. Dan Mitchell is on the line with us, the co-founder of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity. And the Center and uh, freedomandprosperity.org is the website. Daniel J. Mitchell is his Twitter handle, as well as CFANDP. Dan, welcome back. It's been a long time since we've talked. So what what's your objection to what Joe Biden is doing? Uh, my objection is I don't think the federal government should. Uh, I think it's too big already, and I don't want it to get even bigger. And we already had a $2 trillion supposed COVID relief package, not a lot to do with COVID, actually. Uh, now he has a $2 trillion so-called infrastructure plan, although only $115 billion is for roads and bridges. And then he also has this uh, additional $2 trillion plan for even more social spending. And all that's being accompanied by a lot of higher taxes. And the bottom line is, I just don't think making our economy more like Greece or Italy is going to be a, a good recipe or Denmark or Canada. Right now, our federal government is about 17, 18% of GDP. And if you take out all of the privatization that is happening in the federal government, a little more than a third of our total federal budget is privatized. And if you include you know, acquisitions, it's more than two thirds. More than half of our intelligence budget has been privatized. If you take all that out, our federal government, the actual federal government part of our federal government, is about 10% of GDP. In Canada, I believe it's 37%. I'm running from memory off numbers that are probably a couple years old. I think most of your European countries, you'll find the government spending because they're providing healthcare system, they're providing healthcare to everybody and free college to everybody, is typically around 35 to 40% of GDP. I don't understand why you're saying that a federal government that's 20% of GDP, more or less, is a bad thing when all these other countries have a better quality of life, a more predictable retirement for older people. Younger people can go to college without ending up in debt. We had 600,000 bankruptcies last year for medical debt. It's going to be far worse when I think when we finally see the stats because of the COVID. Okay, well, according to the OECD data, living standards in America are about 40% above European levels. And a person in the bottom quintile in the U.S. has a living standard roughly equal to a middle-class person in Europe. So there is a real consequence in terms of slower growth, lower wages, lower salaries to having a European-sized government. And I just don't think that Americans would want to pay that price. 
Well, I, you know, I lived in Europe for a year, and yeah, the, the standard of living is somewhat lower than it is here for the middle class. You know, people are less likely to have uh, more fancy furniture, or maybe they buy a car every third year or something like that, and homes are a little more modest, at least where I was living, out in rural Germany in Stuttgart. But everybody had health care. Everybody had free education. Nobody feared old age or retirement. I mean, it, it just seems to me that the terrors of living in America that are characterized, you know, and, and made visible by things like this movie Nomadland are pretty much not the norm in countries that have bigger governments. You say America's government is too big. You know, I'm, I've, you know, I'm fine with cutting parts of the defense budget, but I'm not hearing an argument that says that here's the perfect size of government. What is it? Can you identify any country in the world that has gutted all of their social safety net systems, that has done away with Medicare, that has done away with Social Security, that has done away with all these so-called big government programs that you're talking about, where life is actually good and people have a high standard of living. Denmark supposedly has the happiest people in the world. Well, speaking of Denmark, did you know that until the 1930s, there was virtually no welfare state in Denmark or any country in the world? The Western world became rich in the 1800s and early 1900s when there was no welfare state, no income tax. Now, once they got rich enough, these countries made choices. We all made choices to varying degrees to adopt big government sectors. But that comes at a cost. Instead of growing 3% a year, maybe you're growing 2% a year. But over time, that adds up to a lot. And like I said, I don't think if the average American saw a German family or a French family living in a tiny flat with a refrigerator the size of something you have in a dorm in the United States, they would not want to trade places. And, and that's the trade-off that we have to be honest about. Do you want Because the food is fresh. Economy? It's right down the street. I mean, you know, it's, okay, I, I think you're, is- you know, for anybody who's lived in Europe, Dan, I think they're rolling their eyes right now. I mean, I, I lived in Europe for a year, and I've, I've probably spent another year of my life in at least a half a dozen European countries. And people, <laughs> you know, have you ever watched Michael Moore's movie, Where to Invade Next, where he goes around Europe? I have probably spent a year in Europe myself, extended okay. speaking tours, visits, stuff like that. And the I know life that is not miserable food there. Is far more expensive, housing as well. I'm not saying it's miserable. I'm saying that they made a choice to have bigger welfare states and higher taxes. And by the way, their higher taxes are so mostly on the middle class and low income. People. So you're saying I just don't right. You're, so you're saying America has. So you're saying America has you know has more money basically. Well, in 1800, the wealth of the top 400 Americans was 2% of America's wealth. And that's when Reaganism kicked in. By 2000, it was up to 10% of America's wealth. By 2015, it was up to 15% of America's wealth. And on May 1st, 2021, it hit 19% of all of America's wealth. The top 400 families. Oh, Dan, I'm sorry. I, I, did, I wasn't watching my clock. I, I, I would like you to have the last word. I don't know if you want, if you got a quick rebuttal for that, you got about 10 seconds. Uh, I would simply say that I'd rather have the opportunity that our more free market oriented system in America gives us. Okay, Dan Mitchell. Thank you very much, Dan. Good talking with you. Dan Mitchell is the uh, co-founder of the Center for Freedom and Prosperity. This is the Tom Hartman Program. The website is freedomandandprosperity.org, and you can tweet him at Daniel J. Mitchell, M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L. We'll be right back.
And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you. Just a couple of quick points, and then I'm going to pick up your phone calls about what the hell is going on. Number one, a court has found that um, Bill Barr lied to us and apparently lied to Congress about the Mueller report, that the essence of the Mueller report was, here are 10 reasons for the Justice Department to prosecute Donald Trump for obstruction of justice. And they listed 10 specific examples of obstruction of justice. That was the Mueller report. And Bill Barr came out and said, oh, it doesn't say that at all. It says everything's fine. We couldn't find any proof, blah, blah, blah. And he sat on it for a month until that became the public story. And then released this redacted version of it. Version of it. Well, the court says, you know, he lied. He lied to Congress. He lied to us. Bill Barr did. I'll be uh, going into a little more detail on that tomorrow. Facebook's oversight board has decided that Trump cannot have his page back. But, and there's a huge but there, they said, this is not a permanent ban. We're going to look at this in a few months. Uh, so they're just kicking it down the road. And Cinco de Mayo. Most people think Cinco de Mayo is Mexican Independence Day. No, Mexican Independence Day is September 16th. Cinco de Mayo is the celebration of the Battle of Puebla. And this is a, a ragtag, largely volunteer Mexican army made up of indigenous soldiers who fought back against the better equipped and trained forces of Napoleon III, the French forces. And why was that? Because Napoleon III was lining up, hooking up with the Confederacy. He wanted to seize Mexico and turn it into a slave state. And the Mexicans were saying, no, we don't want to be slaves. Cinco de Mayo is an anti-slavery anniversary. Pretty amazing stuff, huh? John in Hillsborough, Oregon. Hey, John, you wanted to get back to uh, Dan Mitchell and his thoughts on taxes and, and the size of government? Oh, yeah. Well, I, I got the Bible of Europe. <laughs> it's um, a book written by Jeremy Rifkin, and it's called The European Dream. Oh, and, that was uh, like been a, 15, 15 years ago, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, 2004. Yeah, I remember but, when it came out. Well, that's what, yeah. Um, but some of the chapters he has in here about Europe, one of them I like, um, creating the individual, inventing the ideological um, uh, property. I, and mm -hmm. he was just talking about the mindset from like World War II, everybody was kind of burned out on governments, I guess, or they had to reinvent themselves. But one of the things, I've been in Europe, too. I was in Denmark, but that was way back in 72, so everything's invalid, <laughs> what's coming today, but what's going on today. Sure. But one of the things that I think a lot of people have to understand that, okay, let's do a little bit of analogy. Oregon and Germany, well, I think since East Germany has reunited with um, West Germany, but they're about the same size in, um, you know, square miles. Oregon's around 97,000. I think Germany's about 110,000. But the only thing, Germany has like 90 million people. Oregon only has like three and a half million. So there's not a lot of elbow room, to, you know, to have a three-car garage and, you know, a half acre of lawns and stuff. I mean, but right. that's always been the case is overpopulation. I mean, look at Great Britain. They have something like 75 million people, and it's smaller than Oregon and um, whatever. So yeah, higher po in other words, higher population density. Yeah, higher population. Which, so which, I think um, that your guest was didn't have all the true facts together. You know, when you when you're squished together, you really can't. You know, 
expand a lot, you can expand in your mind, but not well, in you your know, mind. And you don't necessarily need to, uh, you know, when, yeah, when yeah, you right. can okay. walk, walk less than a block to the local, to the local store to, to pick up today's fresh bread or fresh vegetables rather oh, yeah. than having to drive two miles to the supermarket, you know, well, every, thought, every weekend you know, or something like that. I thought it was, un- yeah. it was really unique. They would have people living on top of their businesses, like the baker, you know, yep. or, you know, somebody that, tool, yep. you know, selling tools. They're just upstairs, and that's where they live, and so they go back downstairs and, you know, do their thing, you know, their business. Yep, yep, so, I'm with um, you. John, I, I'm just kind of commenting John, that guy really didn't have a lot of things together, but, you know, I know you have a short of time that you can interview people, but anyway, that's how I'm yeah. in, a, in a nutshell. John, thank just, you for uh, your comments. I, it's it yeah. very, very well said, and, and I, but I do, I want to get some more calls in here. Lauren in Seattle. Hey, Lauren, your thoughts? Hi, Tom. About every two years, I spend three months in Europe. I Mm -hmm. live with a family of four, mom, dad, and two teenage girls. My wife Mm -hmm. and I speak some Dutch, and that guy could not be more wrong. About the European standard of living? Yeah, we live in a nice middle-class neighborhood. They have a car, and we have dozens of friends in lots of different houses that we visit. Two of them are doctors. We have friends and family in Sweden, and this guy talking about some lower European standard, he just, he simply must not have ever visited anybody's home in Europe. Yeah. It left me scratching my head. Lauren, thank you for adding your your personal story. I mean, here we are hearing from actual people who've been to actual places. Larry in Bellevue, Iowa, you wanted to talk about Dan Mitchell? Hi, thank you. Yes. Your last two callers were spot on. I applaud them. I have a a friend in Germany right now, and I heard Dr. Mitchell's comments, and I sent her a quick text message and asked her her thoughts. And her response was bull excrement. (laughs) Right. I get it. And uh, she did admit that, you know, they pay much higher gas and road taxes, which I agree with. Yes, we, Mm -hmm. we should paying those also, if we ever want to get off fossil fuels. Her comment was that the standard of, of living there is, is very, very good. And uh, food is cheaper than the states. I think he's defining standard of living by money and size, and I think the Europeans would not refer to it as standard of living, but quality of living. Absolutely, very spot on. And the minimum wage there is a, is a, she says around eleven twenty three an hour U.S. dollars, which comparatively, yes, uh, absolutely, and we have, all have further to go. Yeah, and although most folks are unionized and they make a much better uh, income than that, Larry, thank you. I mean, this is the European dream, you know, to, to quote the title of the book, is really what I think. A majority of Americans are starting to say, you know, Joe Biden might get us there. He might get us there. He might get us to where, I mean, he said the other day, health care should be a right, not a privilege, right? Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. 
With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. Our book today is From Slave Ship to Supermax, Mass Incarceration, Prisoner Abuse, and the New Neo-Slave Model by Patrick Elliott Alexander. This is Chapter 1. Talking in George Jackson's Shadow is the title, If Beale Street Could Talk. Prison preoccupied the literary imagination of James Baldwin. Yet his biographer, David Leeming, is one of the few to notice that prisons and prisoners were a significant part of Baldwin's own personal experience. Even the most cursory glance at Baldwin's published works and interviews bear out Leeming's important observation. In his essay, Equal in Paris, 1955, Baldwin reveals that during his time in France, he was, quote, arrested as a receiver of stolen goods and spent eight days in prison. While confined, Baldwin witnessed with great shock another incarcerated man's bleeding and wounding go unattended intentionally by prison staff. In his longer essay, No Name on the Street, 1972, Baldwin reflects on frequent prison visits that he made to his friend Tony Maynard, a black man who suffered violent treatment from guards after he was falsely accused with the murder of a white U.S. Marine. Baldwin's advocacy for black political prisoners in particular deeply informed his writings and public addresses throughout the 1970s and included actions such as aiding in the release of imprisoned Black Panther Party co-founders Huey P. Newton and Bobby Seale. In 1970, Baldwin was so outraged by the appearance of Angela Davis, the black revolutionary and advocate for political prisoners in handcuffs and mock mugshot posture on the cover of Newsweek magazine, that he published an open letter to the New York Review of Books in which he deemed her jailing a continuation of slavery and a foreshadowing of a radicalized epidemic of mass incarceration at one and at the same time. Quote, only a handful of the millions of people in this vast place are unaware that the fate intended for you, Sister Angela, and for the numberless prisoners in our concentration camps, for that is what they are, is a fate which is about to engulf them too, end quote. When Baldwin spoke out about racism in the criminal justice system in the Dick Cavett Show in 1973, he won widespread admiration among imprisoned black communities, receiving, quote, so many letters from them that he determined to arrange a Christmas version of his musical drama, The Hallelujah Chorus, that would tour American prisons. Finally, in 1982, Baldwin published a letter in which he insisted that artists and prisoners have more in common with one another than have servants of the state. Baldwin was a stranger neither to witnessing nor to writing about prisons and prisoner abuse. Yet Baldwin's oeuvre had not been examined extensively in the context of his engagements with the literature and life experiences of imprisoned men and women. This chapter focuses on Baldwin's understanding of prisoner abuse and police intimidation as interrelated, radicalized social control functions of the contemporary U.S. carceral state and pays careful attention to how his historicizing of radicalized state violence in fiction is shaped by his admiring engagement with the writings of imprisoned intellectuals. 
Baldwin, I contend, alludes to the human chattel conditioning, disciplinary violence, and economic exploitation that typified the institution of slavery in his black liberation movement, era short stories, and novels, to situate his black working class characters' subjection to racial profiling, police brutality, wrongful incarceration, indefinite solitary confinement, prisoner abuse, and premature death in racialized historical context. Focusing mostly on Baldwin's novel, If Beale Street Could Talk, 1974, this chapter explores how Baldwin, inspired by the narrative techniques of the imprisoned intellectual George Jackson, links a repressive logic of racial terror from the era of antebellum slavery with the state's practice of white supremacist social control into the contemporary criminal justice system. I argue that by incorporating Baldwin's conception of neo-slavery into the elusive framework for Beale Street, Baldwin elucidates the predictability, rather than the aberrant nature, of black men's hypercriminalization, incarceration, and brutalization by the state. Beale Street thus exemplifies well what I theorized in the introduction as a neo-abolitionist novel. With this work, Baldwin becomes the first canonical African-American writer to construct a conceptual model of the prison industrial complex in fiction that privileges the narrative viewpoint of its captives while also making apparent slavery's vestiges in the contemporary U.S. criminal justice system. My point of departure for this chapter is Baldwin's career-length consideration of racial terror as a state-sanctioned social control function of both pre- and post-slavery American life, and the relationship of this instrumentalist terror to blacks' recurring encounters with state violence in the late 20th and 21st centuries. This contextualization establishes a broader framework within which my reading of criminalization and punishment in Beale Street might be understood. Baldwin's witnessing of the physical, psychological, and spiritual harm that the criminalized black body endures at the hands of the state shows up prominently in his nonfiction works as well. In his book-length essay, No Name in the Street, for instance, Baldwin's assessment of wounds that prison guards inflict on his former driver and bodyguard, Tony Maynard, a wrongfully incarcerated black man, is characteristically disturbing and damning. The book, From Slave Ship to Supermax. Our representative now, Charlie Crist, he's a congressman from Florida, uh, used to be the Florida governor as a Republican. He's become a Democrat. He's a member of the House of Representatives. He's running. For, he's, he just announced this morning he's going to run for governor again. I think he'll, he has a chance of really giving Ron DeSantis a run for his money. But we'll see. You know, time will tell. And the White House has announced a plan to redistribute vaccine supplies, telling basically states, use it or lose it which might change the attitude of some of the folks in the red states, or it might not. I don't know. And 11 Madison Park, one of the world's fanciest restaurants, is going mostly vegan. Not 100%, but they're close enough that they're calling it vegan. And I think this is just spectacular. It's good food. It's a great way to live. It's a great way to eat. I've been mostly vegan for years and years and years. I see that as a good sign. There's another story here that I want to cover as well with Victoria Jones, which I'm going to go to in just a second. And then on the other side, of, we have Trita Parsi, who is going to be on for about 10 minutes. And we're going to be talking about why Iran and Saudi Arabia are getting together. And that's going to be fascinating. Victoria Jones, however, right now is on the line with us. 
chief Washington analyst for the DC radio company. Victoria Jones DC is the Twitter handle. Victoria, Scotland having freedom? Tell me what's going on here. Yes, well, there are, there are elections throughout the UK tomorrow, and Scotland and Wales will be doing elections that could increase the chances of possible breakaways. In Scotland, the Scottish National Party, which is led by Nicola Sturgeon, looks like it really is 50-50 whether they will, in fact, get enough votes for a full majority or whether they're just going to fall short. What Nicola Sturgeon has said she will do is, if she does get a majority, is she is going to call for a second referendum on independence for Scotland. Now, the poll of polls by the Financial Times, which does pretty good polling, says that Actually, the Scots are split 50-50 on this, which is really interesting on independence. But many Scots do want to break away because they, not only do they want to break away, but there's a lot of very hard feeling about Brexit. The Scots Mm -hmm. did not want Brexit. They voted against it. Right. So to what extent is this Scottish sentiment not so much, you know, we hate England, or don't want to be part of the United Kingdom any longer, but rather we love the European Union. We think of ourselves as Europeans as well as Scots, and we would rather be aligned with the Europeans and the European Union than we would aligned with Great Britain. Well, it's definitely want to be aligned with the Europeans, and it's a deep resentment You know, Brexit was a very emotional vote. And there's a fair amount of emotion here, too. Emotion against Boris Johnson, the Conservative leader in Westminster in London, and against former Conservative leader Theresa May, because they really ignored them and treated Mm. them, they they feel, with disrespect and condescension. And they're very angry about that. And what are the chances that if Scotland does, as a result of these elections this week, if Scotland does end up independent of the United Kingdom, that it becomes a democratic socialist republic? Is that what the direction she's going? I don't think that she's necessarily going in that direction. But what's interesting is that she is not answering questions about the details of what her plan is. She's not talking about currency, banks. Um, fishing, the border, any of those things when she's asked questions about them. She says there's time for that during a referendum campaign. Well, inquiring minds would like to know what her thoughts are about that right now. Yeah, I would too. And very quickly, we I think we have about a minute left. The French are threatening to cut 95% of the electricity to the Isle of Jersey over this argument over fishing rights uh, coming out of Brexit. What does that mean? It means that Jersey could be in the dark. Is Jersey part of the UK? Yes, Jersey is part of the UK. It's sort of a crown dependency, so it has special Mm -hmm. status. French have been very angry about this for hundreds of years because Jersey is actually closer to France than it is to the UK. But this is a very extreme reaction to a fishing Brexit dispute. Oh, my. Oh, my. So... How's that going to play out? I mean, is there a court that decides this? Uh, Well, there could be a court that decides this. 
or it could be that heads are going to have to cool because really putting everybody in Jersey in the dark is just seems a little bit extreme. And, you know, frankly, um, England and France have been at war since the 11th century, and it just feels like right. this is ongoing. Yeah, yeah, since the Norman invasion, right? <laughs> the French invasion. Do you think that uh, Jersey, this might uh, spur Jersey to start uh, producing their own electricity? Hey, let's build some windmills. Doubt it. They, they live the Doubt good it. life. They're on, on yachts. Okay. Victoria Jones, the chief Washington analyst with the DC radio company. Victoria Jones DC is her Twitter handle. Victoria, it's always wonderful talking with you. Thanks so much for dropping by today and, and enlightening us. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. There's also some really important stuff happening in the rest of the world that I think we really need to be talking about. There's a fascinating article in Foreign Policy Magazine, FP, foreignpolicy.com. It's by Trita Parsi. It's titled, Why Mohammed bin Salman Suddenly Wants to Talk to Iran. And this is fascinating because just a couple of years ago, you know, uh, Mr. Bone saw Mohammed bin Salman was trash talking Iran. And all of a sudden he's now saying, oh, yeah, maybe we can be partners. Maybe we can work together. Dr. Trita Parsi is on the line with us. Uh, Dr. Parsi is the executive vice president of the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, quincyinst.org or responsiblestatecraft.org. And his uh, Twitter handle, of course, is tparsi, P-A-R-S-I. Dr. Parsi, welcome back to the program. What Thank you. you. What is it that you're suggesting is provoking this rather radical change in both rhetoric and behavior coming out of Saudi Arabia, the, the you know the the most uh, arguably the most belligerent of the of the various Middle Eastern countries, you know when it comes to the the Sunni Shia divide, Iran of course Shia, uh, Saudi Arabia principally Sunni, and these other kind of essentially partitionings uh, or uh, competitions within the region. Yeah, and just to emphasize how big of a shift this is, in 2017, MBS, as he's known, gave an interview to Saudi TV in which he said that it's impossible to talk to the Iranians because of their ideology. And then he promised to take a fight against Iran into Iranian territory. A couple of months later, there was a terrorist attack by al-Qaeda affiliated group inside of Iran. A court in Denmark just last week had arrested some of the people accused of being involved in that attack and tied them to not only the Saudi government, but to a person very, very high up in the Saudi government and close to MBS. So we're not wow. just talking about rhetoric, but there was actually quite a lot of involvement in um, promoting that type of violence. And incidentally, obviously, the Iranians are not innocent in this either. But I just want to em- mention this to explain the, the extent of this shift. Now, suddenly, MBS is giving an interview to Saudi TV, and he's saying that we have to talk to Iran, and we're going to try to find a good way of reconciling their neighbors. Uh, There's got to be a better way, which is, in my view, great. I mean, that's absolutely what we need. We need more diplomacy and for these countries to resolve their tensions peacefully. The question is why? And I think if one only points to the fact that the Saudis are losing in Yemen and things of that nature, I don't think it gives a satisfactory answer because the Saudis have been losing in Yemen for quite some time. And incidentally, the Iranians are not doing particularly well either. Their economy is in shambles because of sanctions, etc. I think the big factor that explains this 
is that after talking about it for more than 15 years, American politicians, or in this case, Biden, is finally starting to deliver on the promise of leaving the Middle East militarily. I know Trump talked about it a lot, but he never actually left. In fact, he intensified America's military presence and he gave the biggest blank check to the Saudis that any American president has given. Now it's starting to be quite different. The Biden administration is pursuing diplomacy with Iran. It is uh, leaving Afghanistan. Uh, It is signaling um, uh, that it may be leaving Iraq soon as well. Those conversations have started. And it has also made it quite clear that it's going to shift its focus away from the Middle East in order to shift more towards Asia. Under those circumstances, it essentially means that Saudi Arabia no longer has an American option, meaning that it could hide behind the United States. It could start all kinds of recklessness and wars and the United States would bail it out. As long as that was the case, that was preferable. It was optimal to the Saudis than actually engaging in painful negotiations with the Iranians that inevitably would lead to painful concessions. But now when it seems clear that the option of hiding behind the United States is no longer an option that exists, suddenly diplomacy becomes the best option available to the Saudis. And the lesson Hmm. there, I think, is that instead of this dogma that is so common in Washington and which you know, many of these folks are saying that if the United States were to leave the Middle East, chaos would ensue, everything would just fall apart. The only thing that is actually providing a modicum of stability in the Middle East is the American military presence. We're actually seeing that quite the opposite. The American military presence fueled recklessness and uh, destabilizing activities, at least on part of some uh, U.S. allies. And, while the, and when the United States is leaving, the option of diplomacy and figuring out how to coexist suddenly becomes much more attractive. And let me just also add this. It's not just that he gave that interview. It's that since January, at least five meetings have been held in the country of Iraq between Saudi, UAE, Jordanian and Egyptian officials. In fact, the Iranian foreign minister is going to UAE later this or next week, I believe. So we're not just talking about an interview. We're actually talking about real meetings taking place in which these countries on their own are trying to resolve their problems, which I think is a great thing because it is much more sustainable and much more genuine if it's driven and led by themselves rather than being pushed for by outside countries. This, this reminds me in some ways of the uh, 1974 American withdrawal uh, under Jerry Ford from Vietnam. And, you know, there was a, a, a period, uh, a, f- a few months, maybe a year or so, of disruption and re- revenge killings and, you know, purges and things like that, as, as was predicted and was expected. But, but by and large, and, f- and fairly rapidly, the entire region, including Laos and Cambodia, kind of just restabilized very quickly, you know, without us messing with them any longer. Is there an analogy there? I mean, because a lot of people are really terrified. Uh, you know, Hillary Clinton was speaking about this over the weekend about our pulling out of Afghanistan. But it sounds to me like what you're saying is that our pulling out is going to be the thing that, uh, in fact, the promise of our pulling out is already the thing that is leading to diplomacy in the region rather than more military action. I, I think that pattern is clear now. Unfortunately, in the case of Afghanistan, it may not lead to 
the type of swift diplomacy that is needed. Unfortunately, there's likelihood of being more violence in Afghanistan specifically. But that violence was going to be there anyways, even if the United States had stayed, and it probably would have been more so. After 20 years of being there, clearly the U.S.'s military presence is not stabilizing that country. But I think the pattern is clear, and there's a logic to it. If you have the opportunity of lobby Washington and get the United States to use its massive military power as your personal vendetta army and fight those wars for you. For instance, in Yemen, why is the United States involved in Yemen? There's no clear national interest for the United States to be involved in that war, but we're involved in it because of Saudi Arabia. Well, if the United States from the outset had said no to that war and said, we're not going to give you a blank check, that war likely would either not have occurred or it would have ended much faster. Right. So we're we're the destabilizing influence in the region while we have been convincing ourselves, like we did with Vietnam, you know, 60 years ago, that we were the stabilizing influence in the region. Well, I think we don't have to be the destabilizing factor. I mean, I think we are now because we've been trying to dominate the region militarily. If we shift right. our approach and we actually try to uh, first have relations with all of the different countries and engage in diplomacy, I think the United States can definitely be a force for stability. Brilliant, brilliant. This is such a, uh, it's a remarkable piece that you've written. I encourage anybody to check it out. Dr. Trita Parsi, his uh, Twitter handle, Thank T Parsi, so P-A-R-S-I. Thank you, Dr. Parsi, so much for dropping Thank by. You. It's great, great having you. Thank you so much. And uh, of course, he's with the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Last week, we were talking with Kevin Camps and Greg Pallast, who were telling us about the extent of the uh, disaster of Fukushima and how radiation was flowing to this day into the Pacific Ocean, radioactive isotopes and radioactive elements. I wanted to find out what that impact was on the world's food chain and specifically on America's food chain. Dr. Ken Bissler is on the line with us. He's a senior scientist in marine chemistry and geochemistry at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute, which uh, their website is whoi.edu, and uh, his Twitter handle is cafe underscore thorium. Uh, Dr. Bissler, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us. Uh, It's my pleasure to be here, Tom. So before we get into exactly what's going on with fish and the oceans and things like that, I, I just wanted to do a reality check. Back in the 1970s, I engaged in a fairly lengthy correspondence with a guy by the name of Dr. John Goffman. He had just started a group called the Union of Concerned Scientists, and I was one of their early donors and participants. And he made the point in one of his pieces and, and amplified it in a personal note to me that, in his opinion, there was no, quote, safe, end quote, level of radiation because the way that cancer is produced in a human body is it always starts with one cell, one particle or beam, depending on the type of radiation, strikes the nucleus of that cell and knocks out, you know, somehow damages the DNA. And on a rare occasion, that damage causes the cell to basically, it just keeps reproducing on and on and on and on and on, faster and faster. And that cell becomes 10 cells, becomes a million cells, becomes a cancerous mass and and kills us. And that that's the process. And so all it takes is one cell and one, one particle or beam. 
and thus we should be concerned about any exposure to radiation, although there are dose-dependent and, and population-dependent numbers that you can apply to these things. Is that still the way that science looks at this, or at least many scientists look at this? Yeah, there's certainly no threshold that's been established below which there is no effect of radiation, say, on human health. But, you know, we also have to realize there's already radiation around us on our planet, in our oceans, you know, man-made ever since we started testing nuclear weapons in the 40s, sure. which peaked in the 60s. So we live in this background, and it's a good question, how much more did Japan add to that background? Sure. Okay, so let's get into that. What, what did Japan add to the radiation load of the world, and specifically the United States? Yeah, so I think, though, it's, it's worth studying 2011 off Japan when the accident happened, the reactor right in the ocean. And we saw levels, I'll talk mostly about cesium, radioactive forms of cesium, that were about 10 million times higher than were there before. So in the couple of weeks, maybe two months after, as they were trying to heroically cool that down so it wouldn't get worse, a lot of discharge went in the ocean, fallout from the atmosphere, that increased the ocean levels quite dramatically to the point where you could have effects directly on marine life, death, reproductive effects. That's, that's where you don't want to be. Now, now, what happens, you know, is this quickly is reduced. For the next four years, we couldn't eat the fish off of Japan. And now, for, say, the last four or five years, we're less concerned about that original source and maybe what might happen there if new things were released, new radioactivity. Now, my understanding is that bodies, animal bodies, whether it be fish or whether it be you and me, our bodies believe that cesium is actually potassium. And so we absorb that and put it into our muscle tissue. And that's why high levels of cesium, for example, cause uh, cesium heart, where it, it just burns away the muscle tissue in the heart. And eventually, you know, the heart ends up with holes in it and things like this. This was a big problem around the Chernobyl area back in the day. That radioactive strontium the body thinks is calcium. Iodine, of course, the body thinks is iodine, but it's radioactive. And so it whacks the thyroid. The strontium causes bone cancers. Am I right on, in those things? And, and to what extent is that amplified the pickup of these kinds of radioactive isotopes from Fukushima into the fish that might be in the Pacific Ocean? Right. You're absolutely correct in the way they behave like other chemicals, so the body doesn't distinguish between the, the potassium or the cesium. What that means, say, when it gets into a fish or in our system, is it kind of gets taken up and we release kind of at those same rates, a couple of months to lose half of the radioactive form of season that you take up, if you move away from the source, humans or fish, you start releasing that. Strontium-90 being like calcium ends up in the bones, not for a couple of months, but say a couple of years. So it sticks around a lot longer. And at the lower end, you have things like tritium that behave like the hydrogen atom, radioactive form of hydrogen, behaves like water, that most of that trajectory goes in and out in days or a couple of weeks. So absolutely, the isotope matters in terms of its behavior and time in a fish or our systems. So there are some fish that migrate literally from the east to the west side of the Pacific, and I believe tuna are in that category. Have we ever on the west coast of the United States seen 
uh, radioactive cesium or strontium or any of these other, strontium being one of the more longer-lived radioisotopes. Have we seen that showing up in fish on the west coast of the United States? And I also understand that there was, you know, shortly after the Fukushima disaster, that the U.S. government radically cut back on its testing looking for these things. Do I have that right? Well, the testing programs varied. Usually they were increased. Japan actually, you know, leads the pack in having tested, say, 130,000 fish since 2011. But let's get back to mm-hmm. your tuna story. It's absolutely correct that some, particularly the Pacific bluefin tuna, can feed in the western part of the Pacific, travel. It's an amazing journey, two to four months, all the way across 5,000 miles to our coastline. So in 2011, uh, a couple of scientists, Dan Madigan, Nick Fisher, and Sydney Stony Brook, detected low levels, but uniquely from Japan of radioactive forms of cesium in their muscle tissue. Now, remember what I said too about they lose cesium as you know time scales of one or two months. So as they swam along, they actually got lower and lower in the levels of radioactivity in those fish to the mm-hmm. point when when they arrived on our shore, you know that level was about 200 times lower in the flesh of those fish and the steak you might buy than our standard that's allowed, say, by law, if you consumed every day and were concerned about health effects. So it right. was detected, and uh, but in the bluefin tuna that make this fantastic journey in two to four months. Is there then, I guess the bottom line question, is there reason to be concerned about eating fish out of the Pacific Ocean in the context of Fukushima radiation here in America? Not at this point, no. Both near Japan, the levels are below a much stricter threshold than we have, mm-hmm. certainly in this country. And certainly on the West Coast, there's also been testing of salmon, whales, other fish by Canadians, and they tend to be well below these thresholds. Not zero, so the point of increased risk can be there, but certainly well below where governments set a threshold for daily consumption, annual consumption, and seafood and things like that. Okay. Well, that's somewhat reassuring. The not zero part <laughs> rings my bells, but, but I totally get what you're saying. Dr. Ken Bissler of uh, Senior Scientist in Marine Chemistry and Geochemistry at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. Thank you so much for dropping by today. It's been very informative. Thank you again. My pleasure. Good speaking with you. We'll be back with more of the news of the day in your calls in this just a moment. This is the Tom Hartman Program. It's talk media for the rest of us. Our book today is Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator by Gregory B. Jaxo, former chairman of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. I'm going to start with the last paragraph of Chapter 1, and then I'll start reading Chapter 2. In hindsight, the Fukushima incident revealed what has long been the sad truth about nuclear safety. The nuclear power industry has developed too much control over the NRC and Congress. In the aftermath of the accident, I found myself moving from my role as a scientist impressed by nuclear power to a fierce nuclear safety advocate. I now believe that nuclear power is more hazardous than it's worth. Because the industry relies too much on controlling its own regulation, the continued use of nuclear power will lead to catastrophe in this country or somewhere else in the world. This is a truth we must all confront. Chapter 2. 
The Fukushima accident in Japan was not the first accident to belie the promise of nuclear power. In its early years, the commercial nuclear industry had only a limited understanding of the operations, science, and engineering of actual power plants. This ignorance led to the first major nuclear power plant accident just outside Harrisburg, the state capital of Pennsylvania, in 1979. Three Mile Island prompted a flurry of reforms and a pile of promises that the public would be protected from future nuclear calamities. Through the mid-1980s, it appeared these promises were being kept. Construction on new plants slowly resumed without major accidents. Then suddenly, strange radiation measurements were detected in Sweden. Governments in Europe and throughout the world soon learned that a disaster had occurred at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in the Soviet Union. Like a developing photograph in a bath of chemicals, the reality of nuclear power was starting to come clear. One nuclear accident was an oversight, a mistake, an aberration. Two nuclear accidents hinted at a serious problem with the technology. A third would cement the conclusion that nuclear power plants were simply going to have accidents on a relatively consistent schedule. After Three Mile Island, after Chernobyl, the third accident nearly occurred in 2002 at the troubled Davis-Bessie nuclear power plant in Ohio. The problem is that with each new accident, all the people in charge of nuclear safety seemed to revert to the belief that this one would be the last one. As chairman of the NRC, I battled nearly every day against this instinct to believe that the worst was over. You can prepare for the next accident only if you get all the players to admit that a next one is coming even if and when are impossible to predict. Before Fukushima, too many people I encountered simply did not believe the next one would ever come. Their view is not surprising. Accidents are rare in Chernobyl and Three Mile Island. It happened decades earlier. Yet I continue to believe I could challenge this complacency. I seized one opportunity just after I became chairman. Four days before President Obama tapped me to lead the commission, I spoke at a conference organized by the North American Young Generation in Nuclear, an industry group of professionals entering the field as nuclear operators, designers of reactors, or academic experts in nuclear technology. As I looked out at the crowd, it dawned on me that many of these people had never lived through a nuclear power accident. Even if I had been only nine years old when Three Mile Island occurred, when Chernobyl happened, I was a teenager more worried about surviving my freshman year of high school than about nuclear disaster. The people I was speaking to were even younger. I wondered how they had experienced these seminal events. Being a scientist, I decided to conduct an experiment. I asked everyone in the audience to stand if they were born after 1979, the year of Three Mile Island. Nearly everyone stood. After they sat down, I asked them to stand if they were born after 1986, the date of the Chernobyl accident. Once again, nearly everyone stood. These industry-defining accidents have become dry case studies taught in college classes. The next generation of American nuclear power professionals has never experienced the confusion of a nuclear accident as it is happening. And so it's essential that we remember and teach the lessons of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl. For reviewing these accidents shows common themes of missed opportunity, human failings, and technological overconfidence. No amount of forgetting can change these simple facts. The March 1979 accident at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania seems almost like something out of a science fiction horror film. The cover of Time magazine captured the national mood of chaos, confusion, and fear. The emergency red phrase nuclear nightmare slashed across the dark black cooling towers of the plant. There was no live streamed video as there would be after the Fukushima accident, but the public could imagine the scene inside the reactor. 
Just 12 days before the accident, The China Syndrome, a feature film starring Jane Fonda and Michael Douglas as reporters who uncover a major incident in a nuclear plant, had been released. Perhaps the hundreds of journalists gathered outside Harrisburg believed they too would land such a story. It started on March 28th at around 4 a.m. when a water pump stopped working. The failed pump affected the steam generators, large cylinders filled with many tiny metal tubes that helped turn hot water from the nuclear engine into steam so that the turbines can generate electricity. When the flow of water was cut off, this massive heat exchange stopped working, creating the conditions for a serious accident. The reactor engine was immediately turned off. But so long as the reactor fuel remained hot, which it would for quite some time, its natural radioactive decay would continue, producing enough heat, called decay heat, to melt through the metal containers enclosing the reactor fuel. The same problem would later affect Fukushima. And then he goes through the whole process there. Confessions of a Rogue Nuclear Regulator by Gregory B. Jackso. Welcome back, uh, Uli in Teaneck, New Jersey. Hey, Uli, thoughts on Germany? Hello, Tom. Wie geht's? Mir geht es ist gut. Es geht dir gut, das freut mich. Um, I have Freude. to laugh but when I hear about quality of life, comparing it to Germany and the United States. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, I'm retired now, and I still have dual citizenship, so... My wife has a few more years to go, but we will be moving to Germany. Because our house here in Teaneck, even if we pay off our mortgage, our property taxes are so high that most of our, our uh, retirement money goes to paying property taxes. A friend of yeah. mine in Germany who lives in, in a larger town in, in uh, northern Germany, Bielefeld, you know, about 500,000, I believe, he pays about $250 a year in property taxes. I mean, oh I can't even, I, even if I pay off here, I, I won't be able to afford to live here. I mean, health, mm. and health insurance. I mean, I don't even know where to start. It's a joke. The, more, the, the older I get, the more I regret ever coming here. Yeah, That's how I get I it, it. I get it. <laughs> Yeah. Well, thank you for speaking as somebody who has firsthand experience and actual examples to share with us. Thank you. Stephen in uh, North Reading, Massachusetts. Say, hey, Stephen, what's up? How you doing, Tom? I, uh, in addition to being an uh, adjunct economics professor, I also was a manufacturer's rep for many years for consumer electronics. And so I dealt with a lot of countries around the world. Uh, Singapore, England, Germany, uh, but in particular with Denmark. I dealt with a number of companies I represented from Denmark. And one of those companies, I became very good friends with the owner. And um, um, he would constantly be starting new companies. He was a serial entrepreneur, starting new companies and closing down other companies and and um, constantly trying to invent new things and, and, on, and so forth. And one day I said to him, Peter, how can you do this? How can you constantly keep dumping money into all these companies that aren't making any money? And he said, I don't have to worry about where I'm going to sleep tonight. I don't have to worry about what I'm going to eat. I don't have to worry about my kids' health. I don't have to worry about them getting an education. Why wouldn't I put my savings into new companies? And after doing a little exactly. bit of research, 
I found out that Denmark has a higher entrepreneurial rate than we do because yep. we will lose our homes if we fail. They don't in Denmark. They keep their homes so they yep. can keep going at it. Yep. And uh, it, was, it was just really eye-opening to me. And it just flies oh, yeah, in the they, face they, of what these people say, you know? Yeah, I mean, just just the just the Medicare for all part, uh, you know, if you go back and you look at some of the the uh, I think the Congressional Research uh, uh, Bureau, uh, you know, Bernie had commissioned some studies on this and they asked, you know, what will the impact of Medicare for all be on small business? And the, the answer is clear and unambiguous. More people will be willing to start small businesses. Yes. Everybody I asked, how can you pay these high taxes? Doesn't that bother you? They would always say, yeah, we don't like paying taxes any more than you do, but look what we get for it. Look what we get yeah. for it. Exactly. And, and exactly. I, you know, you want the government, this idea that there's big government or small government or wrong size. You know, you want the government to be exactly the right size to meet the needs of the people. It's like in the Declaration of Independence, you know, governments are instituted among men deriving their powers from the consent of the governed. In other words, the reason right. why we have a government here is to do what we want them to do, not what, you know, Charles Koch wants them to do, not what some cranky right-wing billionaire wants them to do, not not what the Mercer family wants them to do, not what you know exactly. billionaire oligarch Donald Trump or billionaire oligarch Rupert Murdoch and his son want them to do, but what the people want them to do. And in other countries where the Supreme Court has not said that billionaires can own politicians, by and large, the government does what people want them to do. And here in the United exactly. States, you get the literally the entire Republican Party. Mitch McConnell announced it yesterday. There won't be a single vote for the infrastructure bill. Not one Republican vote, which is kind of good news because it means that the Democrats can just go ahead and make it as big and as cool as they want. And they don't have to compromise with anybody except Joe Manchin. And, you know, right. and that's a whole other right. conversation. But, you know, I think I think it's just such an important thing to realize that, you know, because money has so corrupted politics in America since the since the mid 70s with those two Supreme Court decisions, and especially since 2010 with Citizens United, we have a twisted political system. It's been deformed by giant money. Stephen, thank you. Thank you for sharing your, your actual personal stories with us. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.